Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. The title of today's message is The Freedom to Destroy Oneself. And we're going to drive the principle out of Revelation 16 right out of the campaign of Armageddon because what you're basically going to see is the earth dwellers get to the point where they've crossed the line so bad that there's no other solution for them and they've lost their minds. They're actually fighting against God. This is crazy. You think, who in their right mind would ever think, I'm going to fight against God? Well, these do. And that's what the book of Revelation is saying is that humanity is going to this insanity. It's starting now, and this is where it ends up, trying to fight a war against God. Obviously, it loses. But what God is doing is allowing human freedom. The greatest gift he gave human beings is freedom, will, volition. To be made in his image means that you and I have the ability to choose. And that choice is a wonderful gift, but it is also our liability. What do you mean? Well, God has given us the freedom to hurt ourselves, to choose the broad path of destruction. And why is it called the broad path of destruction? Because it destroys. If you choose that path, believer or unbeliever, you will inevitably destroy your life. And we're watching that happen right in front of our very eyes. We're watching on a nationalistic level the destruction of America. We're watching it happen right in front of our very eyes, and it does bother me, as it should bother you, to watch our culture get lost. And why is that? Is God is responsible that freedom that I have given you, America, as a country, that freedom that's been a shining light on a hill, as Ronald Reagan said, that freedom can be turned to destroy you. Because the way our people in our culture see freedom, they don't see the freedom as biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is I'm free to obey and do what I'm supposed to do and live an abundant life. And that life means responsibility to certain morality, to certain practices. Our founding fathers put the foundation for our judicial system, for our government based on biblical principles. They even said, if the Americans ever get away from this, we're done. When the biblical morals go out the door, we are done as a nation, and they're absolutely right. That's what effectively the universities and the colleges and the educational system has effectively done over the last 50 years. So as the politicians, so has the globalists, or whatever, hurt our country. And it's now... We're starting to see this. Well, what kinds of things? What has this freedom done to us? Now people see freedom as the freedom to do anything you want to do. The freedom to act any way you want. To marry anyone you want. To be whatever gender you want. For goodness sakes, Facebook has 57 genders. Unbelievable. How did that happen? I thought there was male and female. But when you let the gates flow open like that, then anything is up for grabs. And there'll be more, by the way. There'll just simply be more. Let me give you some examples to understand how precarious of a situation we are in as a country. For instance, there was a Muslim training camp in New Mexico found. 
A guy's training kids to be jihadis right here on our soil. He got busted. Kids are starving to death. Kids are uh, emaciated. But this New Mexico compound was training jihadis on American soil. Where was the FBI? How come they didn't know this? Let me add a couple more things to this. This guy, just to show you how bad it is getting. This guy teaching these kids to go into schools and blow up schools. That's what he was teaching them before he got arrested. Right there in New Mexico. His father is a Muslim extremist. He's the son of a New York City imam that was linked to the World Trade Center attempt of bombing it in 1993. His father is on two prominent U.S. Muslim organizations, CARE, Council of American Islamic Relations, and ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America. He was an unindicted co-conspirator in that World Trade Center bombing in 1993. That's his dad. And he's alive and well in our country. By the way, just to connect more dots and how deep state this gets. His name is Sir Raj Wahaj Sr. This is the father. Trained in Wahhabi Islam in Saudi Arabia. Spiritual advisor to Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders and supporter of Linda Salsour, the one who led the Women's March and the ones the Democrats continue to put up on the platform. Linda Salsour is a radical Muslim woman. She says her favorite person was this guy that just got busted and her dad and she goes to them for spiritual advice when she gets down. And she is on and they are on a Muslim jihad, a political jihad against the Trump administration. And you say, Brandon, you're getting political. No, I'm just trying to show you the deep state of the problems we're having. Hang on. Democrats in public offices have been using Linda Sour as their spokesman. She's tied to Dr. Abdul El Sayed of Michigan. These are prominent people in our politics. The newly elected Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, who's a democratic socialist, nothing but a communist. She's attached to Stacey Abrams in Georgia. They're all attached. What's your point, Brandon? My point is in showing you all the connections is, why is the media silent on this? We haven't heard a peep from them. You know why? Because they're all connected to the Democratic Convention. They're all connected to Linda Sauer. They're all connected to this imam that's a spiritual advisor of Bernie Sanders. That's why no one's talking about it. Now, I only give you that as an illustration is that when you lose the media in whatever country, and they're willing to lie about anything that comes out or cover a story and not talk about it, you're done. You know why? The low-information voter that's outside that doesn't even know anything will vote for someone like this Horatio Democratic Socialist, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is a flat-out Marxist. You know what this lady, that, that she won, what she has offered? She wants no borders. She wants no prisons. Think about that. She wants a guaranteed wage for everybody, even if you don't work. She wants free health care to everybody, free housing 
to anyone who needs it. The abolition of ICE. No sending people back. There's no illegal immigrants anymore because the open borders. So all 7 billion people in the world can come in and take our health care, take our free education, take our schools. That's what she wants. Abolish profit is one of her maxims. What do you mean? No private businesses. We want all state-run businesses. We want government control of food distribution. I point this out to tell you this is the new face of politics. Communism. And the whole host of politicians are embracing people like her and Bernie Sanders. And you think, okay, what's the big deal about that? Is this being political? No. It is intersecting now with biblical morality, biblical statutes, biblical principles. You can't just give free stuff to anybody, especially if you don't work. They estimate that if some of these policies were implemented where we give all free health care, free food to anybody, free living wage to everybody, she would be in the realm of over $200 trillion to pay for that. And yet, the idiots that voted for her don't know anything about that. Guys, do you understand the combination of a bad media versus an uneducated voting block? Do you see the perfect storm in that? That anyone under my age, 45, doesn't think Marxism or communism or socialism is bad. When you ask them, how has it worked? They don't know. You ask them, well, what about Venezuela? And they go, I don't know. What's happening? Oh, they're just eating the zoo animals. That's all. There's no food. It doesn't work. How are we going to pay for this? No, I, I give you that because what's happening, we're losing our minds. People are going crazy. People are not thinking straight. For instance, in the school systems, the schools are getting ready to start this year. Their NEA's agenda is American self-loathing, political correctness, reverse discrimination, anti-individualism, pro-collectivists, pro-communists, pro-socialists, historical revisionism, moral relativity. That's in the public schools. So we shouldn't be shocked at anyone under 45 would vote for a socialist or a Marxist. We shouldn't be shocked. We're getting to another school year. 80% of the graduates that come out of high school are going left. 80% are going left when they graduate out of high school. The schools are producing nothing but leftists. Nothing but leftists that have lost their minds, have lost their grip on reality, don't know how to pay for anything, but they all want a free education. And now our public officials want to have these creeps teach our kids at the public school libraries. Take a look. Take a good look at this. This is in public libraries that you and I paid through taxes. This is a common occurrence now in public libraries is to hand transvestites and transsexuals or whatever, cross-dressers, whatever you want to call them, teach kids in the public schools. Or public libraries. Look at this. Look at the parents. This is a demonic thing. And everyone, the parents that took their kids to this, think that's cool? Oh, it's so funny. It's just great. That's demonic. 
This is where we're at. This is happening here in California. This is not some faraway land that doesn't affect us. What were these parents thinking, putting their kids in front of that individual? They don't. That's the point. They have lost their minds, which is exactly what God said would happen to us if we use our freedom in a wrong way, you will destroy yourself. The evidence is right in front of you. America is destroying itself. Not only on the nationalistic level, but it's happening on the individual level because of the abuse of freedom. And it's like that old saying, I'll give you enough rope to hang yourself, America. I'll give you enough freedom, and eventually you will destroy yourself. Look, guys, you don't have to predict what's going to happen in America in prophecy. Why is it that we're not mentioned in prophecy? Why don't we, we even are a blip on the radar screen in prophecy? Because of that. We implode, it looks like. We crumble from the inside. We get enough Marxists and communists to hijack the whole system. We will economically destroy ourselves because we can't pay for it all. Imagine open borders where anybody in this world could say, I want to come to America because they give me free housing, free education, free food, and a living wage. How can you and I pay for that? But yet that's what's winning at the voting polls. You'll collapse economically. California's going to collapse. They're going to collapse. They're just going to run out of money. And after money, you end up like Venezuela. You can already see where we go. That's why we're not a blip on the radar screen. We would have to hook up with the one world government in order to survive. Makes perfect sense. But let's go down to the individual level before we get into the text. This principle is not only working nationally, it's working on individuals personally. You and I have freedom, an incredible gift from God. You have the freedom to decide what you're going to do with your life, how you're going to run it. If you're going to take the broad road of destruction or you're going to take the narrow road, you have these choices that lay in front of you. And everybody in here knows somebody in their family or friends that are destroying themselves right now, right? You know they're destroying themselves. They have taken that road and they are currently right now as we sit here destroying their lives. Why? How could you get to that point where you want to actually be destructive to yourself? What happens? Well, I'll talk about the process later on in the application. But what we want to get down is watch this principle as the campaign of Armageddon lets it unfold here in the book of Revelation. And we'll see that God is not willing that any should perish, obviously. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. You must understand that. But he will allow human freedom. And that is the crux of evil. That is the crux of where evil comes from. That is the crux of where sin comes from and how and why people destroy themselves. Let's take a look at the text. Let's go back a little bit, not do a review, but just kind of get a context and start in verse 13 so it kind of we understand where we're at here. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And we talked about that last week. You can get last week's sermon if you want. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And so the idea is the satanic trinity is using the demonic forces to call the kings of the earth 
to gather together for this battle. To what? To fight God. In essence, that's what they're trying to do. Now, the other motive is to wipe out the Jews, and we talked about that. But in essence, the reality is Satan is trying to prevent the second coming. He's actually trying to fight God with human forces. That's really, in essence, what's happening. I know it sounds crazy, but when you're in sin, you don't think you're going to lose. You think you can beat God. That's how crazy sin has made Satan. He thinks he can win. Because a lot of people will say, well, it's just not rational that Satan would even try to attempt this. I know. I know. Have you ever talked to a crazy person in 3B at KMC? You ever try to talk to them and they think they're Superman? They're in an alternative reality. So you got to keep thinking, these are not rational individuals, okay? They're irrational because of sin. Okay. And what did they do? Verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew... Armageddon. That's where the word comes from. Armageddon simply means Har Megadon in Hebrew, which means the mountain of Megiddo. The mountain of Megiddo. Let me show you on a map where this is at in Israel. And so in Israel's map, you can see uh, there's Nazareth and the Galilee section up there. This is called the Jezreel Valley. And Megiddo is this little outcropping right here in the Jezreel Valley. It overlooks, it's on the western side, and it overlooks the entire valley. And let me show you some other pictures of what this looks like. So on a map, you're looking right here, okay? Jezreel Valley, Jerusalem is right here, Petra is right here. These will be the two locations where the Antichrist will come and attack the Jews. The issue is the Jezreel Valley is not where any battle occurs, It is the staging area for the Antichrist and the armies of the world to attack the Jews. So this is just simply a staging area. But you can see it's very flat, and you can put a lot, a lot of armies there. Let me show you some other pictures. This is Megiddo. This is Tel Megiddo. If you go to Israel today, it'll take you to Tel Megiddo. This is right here where Solomon has his stables. This is where it overlooks the valley of Megiddo, or we call Armageddon. Show you some other pictures. There's the other side of the tail there. And there's the tail looking out. And you can see in the background, see how flat it is? This is why you could stage a lot of armies there, obviously. And this is a closer rip of the tail. That's a Canaanite altar right there. And then you can see Jezreel Valley a little bit more there. Some more shots and how flat it is. It's a lot of farmland right now growing. But eventually it'll be covered with the armies of the Antichrist. So that gives you a little flavor. Okay, the valley is about 14 by 20 miles wide. It is a phenomenal staging area. And it hasn't been without its fights. There's a history of fighting here in the Jezreel Valley. The first fight you can see in Judges, and you can read about this with Barak and Deborah, the judges of Israel fought against the Canaanites. And then after that, Gideon fought there. Remember how Gideon had his soldiers whittled down to 300 by God? And then he fought the Midianites. He fought him in this location. And then Saul and Josiah both die in this area as well. To bring you into modern history, Napoleon actually fought there. Napoleon, this was I think in 1799, he fought the Ottoman Turks in this area. Napoleon said this, this is interesting. All the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. I don't know if he knew the Bible, But what he said was biblically correct. He's right. They will. 
One day they will. He said that in 1799. You move into World War I, and General Allenby also fought the Turks there, the Ottoman Empire, in 1918. And if you ever see the movie Lawrence of Arabia, it kind of portrays that. But General Allenby there, and he chose the site to fight there, the Ottoman Turks, because of the biblical and symbolic resonance of the area. That's what he said. And so he intentionally did that. I think I got some pictures of World War I, I think. And there's, there's the planes right there. This is going back to 1918. They had trench warfare, obviously, in World War I. And this is where they were fighting in Megiddo. To bring it into more modern era, uh, Israel had four distinct battles there in Megiddo. There's two in 1948 when they got reestablished as a nation. These are the pictures of 1948. They fought two wars there, and you can see the pictures there. And then, obviously, in 1967, Israel fought the Six-Day War all throughout the Middle East, but a lot of it was there in Megiddo, and you can see some of the pictures there we have from 67. And then also in 1973, Israel fought the Yom Kippur War in the Valley of Megiddo as well, along over other places in Israel. Look at the Israeli soldier buried, you know, in his foxhole, so to speak, and he's reading the Tanakh. Isn't that amazing? Anyway, God's plan for this is to bring all the armies of the world that want to attack him to this location. And I want you to see why. Why does God bring the Antichrist and his armies? He's dried up the Euphrates so Antichrist can move his armies into Israel. And basically, it's like this. You want to fight me? Come on. Let's try it. And so what you want to see is you'll see two passages I want to show you that explain, explain why they do it, the motivations behind it, why God is bringing them to this location. The first one I want you to see is Joel chapter 3. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and pruning hooks into spears. Now, the issue behind that before we move on is bring your best weapons. I dare you. You're trying to... They're tr- think about this. How irrational it is for human beings to think they can make or forge any weapon that could work against God. You have to be out of your mind. But see, God is showing how insane they are. And notice this, the more, the, more of the insanity. Let the weak say, I am strong. He's talking to all of humanity. Get yourself in an alternative reality to think that you're stronger than the God of the universe who created the universe. Get yourself there. Go ahead. I'll allow you. Have the freedom to go crazy. To think you're actually going to win. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. And then he does. He allows them. Notice, he's allowing the insanity. Now, they've crossed the line. Context is important. These people, these earth dwellers in the tribulation have crossed the line. They've taken the mark of the Antichrist. Once you take the mark of the Antichrist, there's no coming back after that, according to Revelation 14. There's no coming back. You take the mark, that's it. You're lost. That is the dividing line in the tribulation. So they're not coming back, so God's showing that. But God is showing you and I how insane they are. Now, he's going to show the motivations. I want you to turn to Psalm 2, and you can see this here. 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The vain thing is to attack God. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against who? Yahweh. And against his anointed. Who's the anointed? It's Jesus. They're specifically attacking the Father and the Son, the anointed. Saying, and here's the motivation. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Don't miss that one. God is showing you the motivation behind it. We want him out of here. We don't want his control over our lives. We don't want his morality. We don't want his principles. And we definitely don't want his laws. Is man's attempt to kick the creator out of his creation. For man's attempt to have the Garden of Eden without the creator. To have paradise without the Prince of Peace. How insane is that possibly? They don't want anything. Well, guys, we don't have to go any further than look what they're doing in the school systems. Look what they're doing in politics. Look what they're doing to our American culture. Our American culture, you go 1950, the senators and congressmen were saying, we base this thing on God's principles and morality. You'll have quotes like that in 1950. And in this short amount of time, we've kicked God out of the public square. It's not too hard to figure this out. We've already done it as a culture. For goodness sake, the millennials, only 4% of them are Christian out of 80 million. Disease or worse, the millennials' kids are worse statistically. Our culture's gone. You and I are a terminal generation, and that's hard to get our minds wrapped around it. The America that you grew up in is now gone. That's the new reality. Because these younger kids, because they're so ungodly, they have chosen the broad path of destruction. They are not marching in line because they don't want his cords. They don't want his bonds. They don't want God in their business. Wow. But this is where it's going. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. I mean, I would laugh. I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? That's like an ant saying, I'm going to fight you. An ant saying, I'm going to get my sticks and and, and go after you as a human being, and I'm going to beat you, human. I mean, you would just laugh, right? You say, you're crazy. Yeah. The Lord shall hold them in derision, or basically, he basically, uh, they're in a state of being laughed at or mocked. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. And you'll see that. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And here's the deal. He's telling them, you can do all you want, but you're not going to stop the second coming. You're not going to stop Jesus from coming back and taking his rightful place on the throne of David over your planet. He is the rightful king. And you have propped up a fake king, the Antichrist. You're not going to stop it. You don't have the power to. I will accomplish my will is what God is saying through all of this. And obviously, we go then to seeing the campaign of Armageddon. Here's what I want you to do. In your bulletin, I gave you a handout, and I want to do a little explaining here before we move on. The reference I want to make note to you right now before we move on is the side that says campaign of Armageddon. Okay? 
Now, some of you guys that come on my Wednesday night class, you've been through this and you understand that a lot of times we have to go chronologically through prophecy, but because we're in the book of Revelation, we're going, it is chronicle, chronological, but it's thematic as well. And what I want to note for you is that there are eight stages in the campaign of Armageddon. Okay? What's happening right now is you're given the first stage, which is the assembling of the allies of Antichrist. And then John jumps to the eighth stage in the book of Revelation to where the eighth stage is the victory of sin upon the mountain of olives. And you have in concert with that the last bold judgment. Now, because these other stages, two through six, are dealt with in other passages, it's kind of like a mosaic. You have to piece the thing together to get the big picture. And we don't have time to go through all the stages. But let me briefly tell you what happens. Once they're gathered at the Valley of Megiddo, they then attack the two areas of where Jews are kept up right now. There's a group of Jews, remnant left in Jerusalem, and then the other ones are in Petra. That's why on your handout, it'll note Jerusalem and Basra or Petra. That's where the two locations of Jews are held up at. So then what happens is, once the armies are assembled, Antichrist advances to destroy every living Jew on the planet. Hence, at the same time, number two, the destruction of Babylon occurs. Fall of Jerusalem because he attacks Jerusalem. Then the armies move to Basra, number four. Then at that time, in the midst of being attacked, Israel has their national regeneration and they all get saved. They all come to faith in the Messiah. And that is important. For Messiah to come back, they have to be saved spiritually. Before he will save them physically, they must be saved spiritually. And so the order is that way. So Israel gets saved, and then they start pleading for Jesus to come back and save them. And then he does, obviously. And you have what's called the second coming of the Messiah or the parousia, which is a rescue mission for Israel. And then Messiah fights. And the battle starts at Basra and ends at the Valley of Jehoshaphat all the way up to Jerusalem. That's why you have the arrow going up from Basra to Jerusalem on your handout. That location then becomes a lake of blood, by the way. As high as a horse's bridle, about 200 miles square, because Messiah is destroying not only the Antichrist, but he's destroying the armies of the Antichrist, and there's nothing left of them other than a lake of blood when he's done. It is very bloody. We've talked a little bit about that. We'll talk more about that in Revelation 19, about the second coming. But I I, got to tell you this because John then skips to number eight stage, where you have the victory ascent to the Mount of Olives. So that's where we go in the scripture. So let me give you a preface with Zechariah 14 to show you we've jumped from first stage now to the end stage, okay? So Antichrist has been destroyed. Lake of blood, Jesus has went to Basra, he hasn't touched the ground yet, and he has moved his way to Jerusalem, and he's hovering right above the Mount of Olives. So if everyone's following me, I know it's a lot, I could lose you like a wet bar of soap in a shower, but if you're hanging with me, then let's move to Zechariah 14. Then the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations, as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet finally then will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south. 
Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. The you is Israel, the remnant that's still caught up in Jerusalem. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azale. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. That's you and I. That's all the saints. That's you and I. We'll be there. We'll see all this transpire. So what happens? Jesus then comes to the Mount of Olives and he finally touches planet earth. When a minute he does that, it splits the Mount of Olives in two, creating a mountain valley for Israel to run out of Jerusalem to escape not only the forces of the Antichrist, but also to escape from what the earthquake is about to do to the entire planet. When he touches the ground, it sets off the last bold judgment, and it creates the biggest earthquake ever known to man. It rocks the entire planet when Jesus touches ground again. Isn't that apropos? Our creator has come back, and he is touching his creation from whence he left, and it creates the largest earthquake in history. Now, let's explain it. Now we move into stage eight in Revelation. Verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And so we have angels executing these judgments, obviously. And then it goes back to the scripture. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Amen. Now, this is at the end of the tribulation. And the Greek in there is what a lot of prophecy guys call a consummative perfect. And what that means is that when he says it's done, it is done, but then there's results that come from the finality of that. And the results will be, we'll we'll explain that. Results come from that. It's like at the cross, he said, tetelestai. The debt has been paid. It is also in that kind of tense, a consummative perfect, which means the debt's been paid, but there's going to be results that come after that. It's just kind of the same concept, if you can follow that. Anyway, in verse 18, he says this, And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on earth. Now the great city, that's Jerusalem, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of her wrath. So I want you to note this. This great earthquake, such as never happened before, splits Jerusalem into three parts. That's why they need to escape, because if they're still there, they'll get destroyed. This will crush the rest of Antichrist's armies, obviously. And and notice this, that the cities of the nations fell. There's two parts to this I want you to understand. The cities of the nations means that every city on planet Earth is destroyed by this earthquake. All of man's cities are completely destroyed. I want you to conceptualize that. Everything that man has ever built is gone. London, Tokyo, New York, L.A., San Francisco, wiped clean by this earthquake. He is taking down every city of man. By the way, I want you to explore this on your own. There is a theme running through the Bible, and it is this. You'll see this a lot in the Old Testament. A tent dweller versus a city dweller. Abraham was a tent dweller versus his nephew Lot who went into the city. The thematic issue between tent 
and city living is this. Tent dwellers, like Abraham, look for the heavenly city to come. They don't sink their roots into this earth because they know this is not their home. They're just simply pilgrims on their way through. City dwellers sink roots, build their own kingdoms, build their own lives on their own worldly pursuits, and become worldly. They are city dwellers. Hence, there's a metaphoric judgment in this. Not only will they literally come down, but metaphorically, everything that man has built in opposition to God comes down in that earthquake. And Babylon is then destroyed completely forever. Whatever came out of Babylon was all false religions. It is completely destroyed. And let me add one more thing. The Gentile dominion of Israel is now over at this point in time. Now, as a prophecy student, you might have heard the term, the times of the Gentiles. Don't get this confused with the fullness of the Gentiles. It's called the times of the Gentiles. It was predicted by Daniel that Israel, Jerusalem, would be under the foot of Gentile oppression by four empires. And that goes all the way back to 596 B.C. of under Nebuchadnezzar when he took Israel and deported them. Israel has been under Gentile occupation even till this day, especially the Temple Mount. We're in the times of the Gentiles. It is Jesus who finishes this time and is right here in this passage when he says it is done. The Gentile domination of Israel is over. But look what's happening right now. You got the UN in Israel's business. You got these people that I mentioned, these democratic socialists in America. Guess what their platform position is on Israel? <laughs> Take a guess. They hate Israel. They want her out of the land. By the way, the new anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism. And you and I, because we're pro-Zionists, think, they think we're crazy. We're the haters. We're the racists. Get used to that one. But see, God is saying it's done. No more. Israel's now going to take their place on that land under the Messiah. In verse 20, it says, Then every island fled away. No more islands. All gone. And the mountains were not found. You're supposed to take that literally. What do you mean? Every mountain range that you possibly could think of on this planet is now decimated, gone, because of this earthquake. The Sierras, the Appalachians, you know, the Himalayans, just go through all the mountain ranges on planet Earth, completely wiped out. Why? He's starting the renovation package. When Messiah comes back, he returns earth back to its Edenic conditions. In Eden, they did not have the mountain ranges as we do today. The earth's topography was very flat, not mountain ranges. The mountain ranges came from Noah's flood as a result of judgment. He returns back and returns it back to Eden. It's a reversal of the curse, a reversal of Noah's judgment. And the earth becomes as it used to be. And so that's why there's no mountain ranges. He's starting the process even with his foot touching the ground. Verse 21. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. A weight of a talent is a little over 100 pounds. I want to show you this. This is hailstone that comes like out of, you know, like Oklahoma or something like that. And there are major hailstorms when they have tornadoes and stuff. 
That's about nine pounds right there, close to nine pounds, 8.9 pounds. Look how size of it. That's 8.9. You want to see the destruction of 8.9 hell? That's what it does. If you're in a hell storm in Oklahoma and you're having nine pound hell balls come out of the sky, that's what it'll do to you. By the way, it kills livestock. This nine pounds. These are 100, 100 pounds of hail. It totally decimates everything. This is concurrent with him touching the ground. Boom, it just lights it all up. Hail coming down, earthquakes happening at the same time. Everything is going crazy. And let me add one more thing to it. Matthew 24 remarks this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. There's a cosmic disturbance. There's a, the fifth blackout that happens. No more light. It all goes dark. The only light people will see is the Shekinah glory emanating from Jesus Christ. Joel adds to this. He says, the sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will also roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake. And the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. Okay. Major cataclysmic occurrences. It's really sometimes hard to get our minds around to this. And a lot of these occurrences kill these people, right? But Israel's protected. They're protected through all of this. The remnant of Israel is protected from the judgments. Just like in the days of Joshua, when the hell came down, it only hit the enemies. It didn't hit the Israelites. So God knows how to parse out believers versus unbelievers, and he makes these cataclysmic events happen to the unbelievers because he can supernaturally do that. Question. If you went through something like this, what would be your reaction to all of this? Repent. I'm sorry. I'm on my knees. Please forgive me. I see your power out. When they see the Antichrist, he just dies at the breath of Jesus. Jesus says, now you're done. It's just so anticlimactic. It's not even a fight. You're done. Done. And he just destroys the armies. Done. 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 I mean, just... Wiping people out, and it's like no match. It's so anticlimactic. There's nothing like, there's no, it's like in a story, you get to that, that, that high point in the story. There's no high point. He comes back and says, you're done. He shows his power that you guys are so weak, you can't even fight me. What are you thinking? Satan, you can't fight me, but, you know. You would think as a human being, man, I made a big mistake. I am so sorry. I repent. Save me. I don't want to go into hell. Watch this. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hell since the plague was exceedingly great. Are you out of your mind? Yeah. You just saw one of the biggest displays of divine power and you blasphemed the one. What is that telling you and I? First of all, it tells you one thing. They deserve what they're getting. The angel has said that. They are getting what they deserve. There's no doubt about that. But remember, balance this out. God is not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. I do not take 
pleasure in the death of the wicked. Remember that. What is God showing you and I? The greatest gift I gave human beings, because I love them so much, I gave them freedom. Freedom to choose the narrow path and freedom to take the broad path. And I warned them that the broad path would lead to destruction. They have destroyed themselves. I didn't want to do this, but they left me no choice. They have become a cancer, and I must take the cancer out before I start the kingdom. They are past the point of no return. They have become like this. And folks, people in our our country are becoming like this. They're becoming irrational. You can't talk to them. They want to kill you. Do you know a lot of these leftists are putting things out? Like in South Africa, kill all white people? Look what's happening in South Africa. They're taking the white farmer's farmland away from them and killing them. In our modern day and age. It's kind of a reverse racism. But really, the, the target is Christianity. That's who they're targeting. And, and, and you see these radical feminists that all men should be dead. We should kill all men. You're seeing rhetoric come out like that. And you're seeing mobs go through our streets. You're seeing our, our mayors of, of, of towns not do anything about homeless people. You got a bunch of crazy people running through the city, even here in Bakersfield. Mayor does nothing. They get hundreds of reports. Well, I got a crazy homeless guy sleeping at my door, defecating on my business. Will you do something? No. They won't do anything. They're busting them in. Go to San Francisco. Go to LA. Watch the homeless problem. Again, another example of lawlessness and, and politicians not doing anything about it. Look at Portland. They can't control the mobs there. Do you see that the mentality is already here? That's the point I'm trying to make. It's not too far of a leap to guess people could get like that to the point of no return. They already are there. They, you can't reason with them. You can't, there's no logic behind them anymore. And God is saying, that's how far sin can take you till you lose your mind And there's no way to rationally deal with you anymore. So what do you do with someone who's lost their mind? Well, God showed you right now. That's how I deal with it. Oh, let's bring it to us. That's a lot. Some application. We too have choice. We have freedom. We have the ability, even as believers, to choose whatever path we want to take. Now you say, Brandon, I've accepted Jesus. Yeah, there's more than that. It's called discipleship. And even in our walk with the Lord, we can choose a broad road that destroys us or a narrow, a narrow one that brings us life. Now, I'm not talking about eternal life. That's settled when you accept Jesus. I'm talking about introducing the death principle into your own life. See, when you introduce the death principle into your own life, you will destroy yourself. Because sin brings death. And you'll never get away from that principle. God warned Adam and Eve about that. And so a lot of times you'll see believers choose a broad road, even though they're believers, and they will introduce a death principle into their life. And you will sit there scratching your head saying, I don't understand what you're doing. You're destroying yourselves. I mean, think about this. We have the freedom to eat. But if you take the broad road on that, you'll overeat and destroy yourself. God says, I want you to marry. You have the freedom to marry whoever you want. But if you marry the wrong person, 
can introduce death into your life. You have the freedom to get addicted. And a lot of people do, even though they know it's wrong. But you don't have the freedom to choose your consequences. See, that's the thing that America doesn't understand. You're free to do anything you want. You want to marry anyone you want? Go ahead. You want to have sex with anyone you want? Go ahead. But you won't have the freedom to choose the consequences. You won't have the choice of when you get AIDS from homosexual behavior, you won't have the choice of getting out of that. You will entrap yourself. That's what God's trying to point out. Don't choose the broad road because you entrap yourself and you won't like it. I'm trying to help you. You have the freedom to cheat on your spouse all you want. But you won't be able to choose the consequences of that. You have the freedom to make all the bad financial decisions you could possibly make, but you won't have the freedom to get out of that mess. See, freedom's a valuable gift. Valuable gift. Prized. But it can be used to destroy. Here's the question. Why is it that people knowingly choose to destroy themselves? What is that? I've wrestled with that a long time. I see it in counseling. I see it in just in general. Why would someone choose something that they know inevitably is going to destroy them? They know. They know that eating bad is eventually going to hurt them. They know that a certain addiction is going to eventually kill them. They know. Why, why, why would someone... Are they suicidal? Is it because they don't want to live anymore? Are they suicidal? It does sometimes end in suicide, by the way. Where does it start? How do you understand that? How do you get your arms around this? Anything you want to make sense of, go back to the Garden of Eden. Intuitively, we know that when we sin, we feel guilt. And all of us in here have done things in our lives that we're ashamed of. That we're, we wish we never would have done. We wish, man, I, was, I blew it there, man. And we know it, but no one else knows it. We know we didn't behave right. We know we didn't do the right thing. And we start having this overwhelming sense of, you guessed it, guilt. Shame. And the devil will just keep loading it on you, by the way. Oh, I can't believe you did that. You better not tell anybody because, wow, if they knew that, they're really not like you. Wow. You're despicable. And you'll have that kind of thought going in your head. So here's what did Adam and Eve do once they sinned? Run and hide in shame. They were in shame, right? God immediately went to them. Uh, uh, a sacrifice for them in blood, obviously, and clothe them. But they were trying to hide their nakedness, as you recall. They were trying to hide their shame, you recall. It's all back to the Garden of Eden. Okay, if God had intervened to make them clothes to wear, which, which represented a blood sacrifice, to take away their shame and guilt, if they had not come to that salvation... What then would Adam and Eve had done at that point in time? Do you ever think about that? Well, you can see this in other passages, like in Romans 1 and stuff. What ends up happening is this. The overwhelming sense of guilt, if you will not turn to God to take care of your shame and say, Daddy, fix this for me, and he says, I will, 
Just you have to come to faith in my Messiah, and Jesus Christ's blood will take away your guilt and shame, and I can forgive you. If you will not do that, you will devise your own way of punishing yourself because you believe you deserve to be punished, and you're correct. But Jesus is saying, I can take your punishment. Just trust me. I'll take your punishment on the cross, and I can forgive you, and we can reestablish you. But if you decide to bypass Jesus, what inevitably inevitably happens to individuals, because they feel this overwhelming sense of guilt and shame for violating the commandments of God, is you will start punishing yourself. You will take matters into your own hands, and then you will start practicing destructive practices that ends up killing you later on. So when I see someone destroying themselves, they are actually saying, No, I'm so prideful. I don't want to have Jesus take my punishment. I'll take my punishment and I'll be the inflictor, the enforcer, and the judge and jury of my own life in pride and I will punish myself. That's what they're doing. If you head in that direction, eventually you get tired of punishing yourself. It starts hurting. So what you end up doing is you then cross a line like you see in Romans 1 and you say, you know what? I'm not going to punish myself. My mind is starting to go crazy. I'm actually going to flaunt what I'm doing and I'm going to approve of others that do. And when you reach that progression, you end up crazy. Romans 1. You'll be given over to a darkened mind. You'll be given over to those things. And that's the worst thing you could possibly see is someone given over. Once they're given over, they go crazy. Hence, why would you and I pick something that destroys us? Because you're wanting to punish yourself. That's not a move you need to make. The consequences of our choices and what we have done will obviously play itself out. And that's enough right there. But when you take it upon yourself and saying, no, I'm not going to accept the punishment that Jesus took for me on that cross. And you don't believe in that or you don't you will you won't accept it into your own life that Jesus took your punishment. Then obviously you will start punishing yourself. Classic. You know how you punish yourself? Let me give you a few ideas. Withdrawing. Staying isolated, not having any interaction with anybody of Christ, getting alone, that's a form of punishment because you're isolating. Getting into an addiction that you know, but you got to say, well, I got I to escape the feeling of loneliness because I've withdrawn. And so, you, so you know, you're punishing yourself by withdrawing, so i got to feel good about this. So I get into an alcoholic addiction, a drug addiction, a sex addiction, a pornography addiction, but it doesn't matter. I've got to ease the pain because I'm punishing myself. Don't you understand? That's just one example. Ultimately, where this ends and where Satan would love it to be taken is that you end up killing yourself. That's where he would like this to end. And I can't tell you scores of Christians that say, that might not be a bad thing. I've done so much bad in my life, Brandon. I'm no account. I have no worth. No one likes me. I'd just be better off dead. You have bought a lie. You have bought a lie. And if you buy that one, you will destroy yourself. You will punish yourself. Hence, if you don't get this figured out, 
you will lead a life that is destructive to your own abundant life that God has given you. And God doesn't want to see that. No one wants to see that. But that's the explanation, not only on a global level, but on an individual level. And you will go crazy one day. And they won't be able to get you back. That's the nature of sin. You eventually go so far, you don't come back. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It's just that you will go into eternity in this damaged self. In this self that never really experienced the abundant life. This self that can't be rewarded because your isolation caused you to withdraw so much you didn't get involved. Again, that's just one example. Remember though, freedom is the most precious gift God gave you. Make sure you use it wisely. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.